Welcome. You're listening to The Hill by Thieves Theatre. I'm Gabrielle. And I'm Nick, and we're thieves. Not exactly thieves, but beginning in 81, we called ourselves Thieves Theatre. But we didn't just do theatre, we did conceptual guerrilla outlaw art projects. Can I add that? (laughs) (laughs) Or what we call paratheatrical theatre. Our goal was to disrupt and alter the social and political status quo. Which really means we just like putting sticks into the anthill and watching the ants scurry and adjust their new reality, their new uh, status quo. So um, in this episode, as promised, we're going to get back to the Chinese man in the back, quote-unquote, as we called him, or the geomancer, as Nick referred to him, him, yeah, Yeah. and uh, to Mr. Lee. So one thing that we realized (laughs) is that nobody ever really referred to anybody's ethnicity or race. In other words, nobody said Black Ace or Black Larry or, uh, you know, Hispanic Tito or Hispanic Juan Mm. or, you know, uh, Arab Ali, white Billy Toyota and red. Um, But for some reason, there was the Chinese man in the back, Chinese Jimmy, And the other Chinese guy, quote-unquote, how he was known at the beginning, Mr. Lee. Yeah, which was strange because we were in the middle of Chinatown, (laughs) right? right? And everything surrounding the hill was Chinese. The people, the stores, the food being sold all over on the streets. You know, strange food. You could find the weirdest stuff. Strange to us. Yeah, foreign (laughs) food. (laughs) The language was spoken, even, you know, Mandarin or Cantonese. but also the signage on all the stores, you know, was in the Chinese characters and those, uh, those pictograph like characters mm-hmm. of the Chinese language. So taking a walk around the surrounding blocks in the hill was like walking in the, inside a foreign country. And uh, still is. Yeah. And, I, you know, I was afforded a lot of time to explore that foreignness. As we said, Gabrielle was usually working my day job up at the warehouse. So I was free to stay on the hill. And um, I walked the surrounding streets. I wasn't quite the scavenger that the others were looking for material items, like Louis was looking for cans and bottles to get a deposit on. Rad, Rad was looking for all kinds of strange stuff, right? <laughs> and finding it too. But I was, um, I was caught into, very early into the metaphysics of the landscape, yes, I gotta you say. Were. Both the natural and the man-made architecture and signage. We had come to the teepee through the tarot deck, a kind of divining and it bringing us there, I can say, because I was reading the tarot all the time back then. Yeah. So now I was looking for further clues into the metaphysics right. and of everything. You also went to the library a lot, yes, which yes. I actually really appreciated. You were bringing back like various Xerox copies of things, research that you did about the area, the the history of the hill, uh, the people, uh, Mm -hmm. the geography itself. And we had taken that history and, and we were telling everybody on the hill about the Native American background of the land because we wanted everybody, meaning visitors to the hill and the residents themselves to understand themselves mm. that they were part of a rich history. 
So when you did all that research, you figured out that um, the name of Manhattan comes from the Lenape, uh, Lenny Lenape tribe, and uh, it was called Manahatta, meaning hilly island. So the only documented evidence of an Indian village in southern Manhattan was on the banks of a large body of fresh water called Collect Pond. Right. And the highest hill in southern Manhattan was on its northeast bank. Um, and next to that was a, a little bit of a smaller hillock where a small band of the Muncie tribe lived uh, the northeastmost division of the Lenape, right? They were mm -hmm. called the Muncie. And that infamous $24 sale that is part of lore <laughs> uh, of, of the hilly island uh, between the Dutch and the Indians was transacted at Warpost. Right, which is? And Warpost was the name of the site and is translated as... Little Hill. Little Hill. So topographically, the hill, meaning our hill, you know, the hill, was also literally a little hill. The Call, little hill. Called the little hill. Called the little hill. By the Lenape. Exactly. So it uh, was and still is the apex of a slight incline from every direction. Uh, the highest point in lower Manhattan as it had been for centuries. And by the way, I said in a previous episode that it was the highest point in Manhattan. I meant to say lower Manhattan. Right. Um, and you didn't catch that. So yeah. I, I wanted to correct that uh, at this point. But right. it's the it's highest high hill in, in lower Manhattan. Yeah, everything slopes down from the hill, the little hill. Exactly. From war posts, it slopes down until it, well... Up top in Manhattan, it goes back up into the hills. Yeah, and inward and right, right, yeah. of course. But um, the the other thing is, what happened to me was as I was thinking about this, as I was doing the research and everything, and then after Mel Chin had come, the Chinese man in back from then on was known in my mind at least as the geomancer, and he became in my head a significant peer. We were both doing the same research in my mind. And um, no matter that we didn't actually speak to each other directly, just sort of gestured to each other, I saw a, a continuity, a continuum and synchronicity of the little hill. Yes, can I just interject there? That's uh, what I meant to say before. We wanted the people on the hill and the visitors to realize they were part of a continuity of the landscape, hundreds of years of continuity. Right. And so on my walks with the uh, looking at the, you, you know, this, these Chinese characters and the graffiti sort of blended into a kind of a dreamscape for me. And at some point when we were living up there, I mean, to use the analogy of the matrix, <laughs> <laughs> right, the blue pill or in the red pill, at some point I took the red pill and I went, people looking at that might say I went off the deep end, but I, I went into a different reality. But I was always exploring the same reality the whole time we were up there. So pretty early on in my research and my wanderings, I had convinced myself, even though ostensibly I was, to you and everybody else, normal. Um, that is, <laughs> no, I mean, you know, mentally. mentally Relatively. <laughs> yeah, mentally and psychologically normal. You know, I was saying, right? I was still sure 
that we were living in a sacred site where time stared back at, at itself and the future and the past were also the present. You know, where the, the cosmos was like a, as I had been re reading, a living creature. And we were at, as Mel Chen had said, the mouth of the dragon, right. where everything was coming out of. Right. right, or as Robert Lanza, who I'm reading right now, but biocentrism, right? Okay. Okay, never mind. Yeah, you want to go in it? No, no, no. <laughs> it, it all fits to me, though. Well, okay. I, Your consciousness I, so you, is reality. But so maybe you did take a red pill, too. Probably. Okay, all right. <laughs> so the hill is at the center of Chinatown to this day. To the west of it is Old Chinatown, or, uh, you know, that's the place that everybody visits when they come to New York. That's the most touristy area. But to the east of the hill uh, is New Chinatown, also called to this day Little Fuju. Fuju. Right, right. And, um, and, and we had described that earlier, what the history of that was. So most of the neighborhood sits on top of what was, three centuries ago, Collect Pond. And in its pristine state, Collect Pond was a body of fresh water that occupied about 50 acres and was about 60 feet deep, and it had a lot of fish in it. And for the first couple centuries of, of European settlement of Manahatta, uh, it was the main source of water supply right. for the residents. And... As the city grew, various commercial enterprises started moving in along the banks of Collect Pond, like you know, slaughterhouses and breweries, uh, pottery works, uh, tanneries, and and they dumped all of their wastewater into Collect Pond. All these industries, so. It didn't take long that by the late 18th century, the pond was considered just basically a sewer, right, and hazardous to health. And eventually, they drained it into the ocean via a canal, which is how Canal Street right, got right, its canal name, just like Street. Wall Street got its name because they had built a wall separating lower Manhattan from above it uh, to stave off Native Americans to stave off, you know, fight off the Indians. That's how Wall Street got its name. Right. Uh, yeah, go ahead. So, yeah, so yeah. Canal Street was because there was a canal there that right. ran into the uh, Hudson River. Right. Right. But um, it was in 1802 that the workmen began flattening the two hills, or the hill, there were more than two hills, but the surrounding hills of Collect Pond. And uh, they were going to fill it in with that, uh, you know, with the earth from that including Warpost, the Little, Little Hill. Hill. So they were going to flatten that. It was called Mount Pleasant at the time. And it's, uh, the adjacent higher peak was called uh, Bayard's Point, right. which was named after the family. So this uh, remodeling or this uh, deconstruction of the hills meant that they had to take away the old Bayard family crypt, mm -hmm. which was built into the side of I the hill. I love this story. Hill. Right. <laughs> Well, the, the Bayard family had previously moved their deceased ones to another location, but the, uh, the crypt was there, and um, the crypt was empty, except not. There was somebody living in it. And, uh, the uh, crypt was empty of dead people. Right. There was one living person <laughs> still in there. One of the city's homeless 
was living inside the crypt. Except they weren't called homeless back then. No, no. He was called, back then, they were called ragmen or hermits. You know, mm -hmm. there wasn't such thing as homeless. I mean, everybody lived in a hut originally when they got to Manhattan, <laughs> right? <laughs> Presumably, yes. Yeah, they weren't skyscrapers. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. But the most important thing to me was the fact that they stopped leveling the hill. All operations were halted, allowing him to live until the day the ragman, the hermit or whoever, was found dead in his home. Mm -hmm. I mean, the hermit did have a name. There was a record. Uh, yeah. You know, I'm sorry. Wasn't there some kind of a, a Mr. Ed episode where they're reenacting the... <laughs> Columbus coming over and then looking through his telescope and seeing skyscrapers. You're really no, I'm sorry. On. Yeah, uh, you're jumping I, the shark I know, here. I'm jumping the shark. All right, continue. No, okay. I'll continue. Uh, well, I don't know. I mean, not okay. with the Ed story, please. <laughs> so there is a historical account that I want to read to you just because it's kind of funny. Um, it was published in 1862. It was called The Market Book, written by Thomas F. DeVoe. And uh, I want to read it because it has really funny descriptions for an official record right. of how they wrote things back in the day, like a singular and miserable looking specimen of humanity. <laughs> it was one aspect you're, of it. You're explaining so, the ragman there. It's a right. great little piece that Nick found in the library. So it goes... Uh, Near the foot of the hill, on the southeasterly side, was the old family burying vault of the Bayards, then known as Bayard's Vault, which had been or was thought to be the, least, the last resting place of the former generations of that old family. But in the march of improvement, which had begun there soon after the year 1790, its occupants were transferred to another resting place at the old vault became empty or at least only for a short period as there came a singular and miserable looking specimen of humanity and took possession of this much dreaded quote unquote tenement house. The marks of time, however, had left in it enough crevices and holes to ensure ventilation. And here, this hermit, or ragman, as he was generally known, lived several years. He wore the cast-off clothing given him, and these he patched with pieces of various colored rags or carpet, the rags hanging in every direction, which gave him a sort of hideous and frightful appearance, which sometimes alarmed grown persons as well as the neighboring children, who would seldom go near him. Many thought he was an old robber or murderer, and as he would not converse or seldom answer questions, he was somewhat feared and not much troubled with visitors. <laughs> right, thinking of the hill now. Right, think of the hill. Young Appleby often carried him cold victuals sent by his mother, Mrs. Bailey, and Mrs. Hopkins, when the hermit became quite friendly and would occasionally talk of some troubles or disappointments in England, and that his name was okay. Captain Dundas. <laughs> Winter and summer, 
he remained in this place, sleeping on his bed of rags, until at last he took his final sleep, where he was found buried in his family bed, the last tenant of the quote-unquote old Bayard vault. Right. Yeah, I mean, when I found that story, <laughs> I Xeroxed it, and the page from the reference book, it was in a reference book, it felt like something magical to me, you know? I mean, I, I kept it almost like a talisman, because the city at that time, when we moved up there, were clearing the homeless settlements all over, all the encampments. And I felt that the hill, the little hill, war posts, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. Bayard's Point, Point was beyond any kind of city control. And you know what? Maybe it was because they threatened for years right. to raise the hill. Somehow I felt it belonged to some greater domain. And the, the spirit of the ragman, hermit, was its protector. Even back then in 1800, it was being protected by this homeless presence. And it's amazing that they let him live out his life, right? Yeah, yeah. In, in that old crypt. Right, exactly. And I mean, as if the the spirit of the ragman or the hermit protected Right, and so, so just to... Uh, because through some of this reading, it becomes a little unclear, I think. To recap, they were leveling the hills to fill in Collect Pond, except when they found this ragman, they quit until he died. Right. Which is incredible. So in my mind, somehow the geography, the earth, the dirt of the hill made it a site for this eternal kind of reoccurrence of history. And I saw the personification and the incarnation of that spirit of the rag man and the hermit and the two Chinese men that were up on the hill. Yeah. Mr. Lee and the geomancer. Exactly. You know? And the fact that Mel Chin, in his own way, you know, Mel, Mel Chin is that land artist that we talked about a couple times before. Was looking for the same was thing. Was looking for the same thing. Yeah. So Mr. Lee was the rag man living in his tied up patchwood kind of hut. Uh, the geomancer in his underground cave there crypt not crypt but cave home home (laughs) you know and and i felt they were my peers you know in my head more than anybody else on up on the hill right yeah and well but we'll get it to the end of the story when the geomancer says you know we were soldiers together yeah that's the way i all the whole time almost unconsciously in my mind i felt of these two people and that's why it's hard for me to harder to me to talk about them than the other people, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, Especially Mr. Lee, you know? Yeah. So Mr. Lee is really hard to talk about. In many ways, he is the lead character in the story, if you will. You know, he's the, he is a lead character in the story of our life. He looms larger than life to this very day, not just because of who he was, but also because of who he represents. He's the reason we couldn't tell this story for over 30 years. We still have a hard time telling the story. So he died while we were still at the hill, 
but so did a number of other residents, right? And uh, he died violently, as did some of the other residents. So the question is, what makes him so special? And that has to do with the responsibility we bear for others, you know, with being your brother's keeper. Whether you want to believe that you are or not, you are. We're all interconnected. And it has to do with intention versus unintended consequences of your actions. It has to do with the very reason for this book and the podcast and why we need to tell this story now. It all comes down to Mr. Lee. Yeah. Mr. Lee lived in the hut that was uh, between, was in between the teepee and La Ponderosa. Whenever anyone came to the hill, any resident, any of our neighbors who were there would point to Mr. Um, Lee's house and say, look, no nails. He put it together with just knots, tying knots. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And everybody was extremely proud of that um, and loved showing Mr. Lee's hut off. And, um, And Mr. Lee himself, especially in winter, (laughs) <laughs> looked a lot like his hut. Right, the like way he all, dressed. All bundled up. Like he, he always reminded me a little bit of like Kenny from South Park, you know, yeah. the sort of squeezed face underneath right. <laughs> all the layers. And he, he was forever working on his hut. You know, he was out there tying and retying the knots, the ribbons, the rope, whatever decorations he put up. He put like oranges up, which is a traditional kind of symbol for luck in Chinese tradition, right? Mm-hmm. And... He moved the location of his door occasionally, <laughs> put it <laughs> one place or another, and he'd often sit up on top of his roof, and he'd be working up there and building it sort of upwards from... Yeah, you know what? I was just thinking, in fact, how you know how he took Polaroids of everybody to do his their portraits with. I couldn't really get a picture of Mr. Lee except up on his roof. He was willing to look at me <laughs> as he yeah. was sitting his roof on, a, on his roof, t- tying and retying, and that's what his Polaroid is. Right. Once I saw him tying a teddy bear up in the center pole on a the top. A giant teddy bear. Right, up on the top. <laughs> and on the outside walls, he'd write on whatever was on the outside wall, whether it was cardboard or a mattress or slate walls or skids, whatever was on the outside, he'd be writing. And all the time, he'd be talking to himself, right? (laughs) And uh, probably in like Cantonese or Spanish, but it was a kind of guttural gurgling that he was talking. (laughs) So it was completely indecipherable. Right, and one one journal entry, I remember saying that this morning at 5.30 a.m., the Chinese man next door was chanting again. Yes, when he was talking to himself, it was kind of like a chant. It was, yeah. yeah. Um, And he left every morning with a bundle of bags uh, slung over his shoulder, and he'd come back with them at dusk. Yeah, and of course the others, everybody else speculated that there there was money in these bags. Mm -hmm. That's why he kept them with him all the time. Or why else would anybody carry the bags with him? Of course, unless there was tons of money in there, right? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And he also did Tai Chi in the park across from the... uh, what is that, Washington Park, or I, I forget the name of the park, but anyway, the park right across Canal, Yeah, big park, it had an open grass thing where uh, many of the Chinese would go there in the morning. And later on, I learned it was interesting because in Kara's building, a friend of ours, 
uh, the elevator. On Christie Street. On Christie Street, which was right across the park. The elevator operator was the, the person who went out in the morning and led all the Tai Chi movements. Really? Yeah. Did I know that? And forgot I don't about know. It? Maybe you did. I no. I yeah. I, maybe you didn't know it. But Kara had told me that. Yeah, yeah. She lived in one of these old time buildings where you couldn't operate your own elevator. It had to have an elevator operator. Well, it was a it, loft right? too. It, it was, was a, a, loft. a commercial, commercial loft. That, and the, he? No, Kara didn't live. Who lived there? Nora, Nora lived there. Yeah. Nora and uh, Alex. Alex lived there. Yeah. But Kara, I think, told me the story. Yeah. Or maybe Nora did. I forget who. But it was the. The Chinese guy led the Tai Chi that was going on. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. It was so beautiful at dawn every morning to right. watch the synchronized. But uh, then I'd, I'd follow him, of course, because he was my peer. And so I'd watch what he'd pick up on the ground. And, and where he went. Right. <laughs> and he always, uh, he, a lot of times he ended up on a little park area on Allen Street, you know. So yeah, he was a very sweet guy. Uh, you know, a lot of my early posts when I referred to him as the other Chinese guy, you know, I'd say stuff like he's very sweet, one taco short of a combination platter. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, we <laughs> That's cuz we didn't know what he was saying for one thing. But well, it was more than that. It was just his, yeah, there his was, whole demeanor and uh, Yeah, we got things translated. We got I things mean, translated, yeah, right. So he'd write on the outside of his hut whatever he had tied onto the outside of his hut. And um, Jimmy, Chinese Jimmy. Right, of course. <laughs> he Who called, else is going to know Chinese? <laughs> well, yeah. Kano um, yeah. would translate, and some of the translations were like, person and money enter here to come and go safely. Home to people of many nations. The Queen of Germany's house. The Queen of Russia lives here. The Queen of England's house. You know, so these were the kind of things he would write on the outside. And every once in a while, we'd, we'd laugh uh, because we found out that he actually made perfect sense. Some of the things. Some, some of the things that he said. So Kano was this one baby-faced, young um guy, Hispanic guy who hung out across the street. And he spoke uh, Cantonese and Spanish and English, of course, but he said he actually learned Chinese before he learned English. Kano did. Kano. Um, But he was, you know, maybe Puerto Rican, I'm not sure, Hispanic. But um, so whenever he was around, he would sometimes translate some of uh, Mr. Lee's gurglings when he made sense, because yeah. he often didn't, and he spoke a mixture of Spanish yeah. and English, and this, this sort of... Yeah, know. I mean, one time, I mean, Connell was up there, because I, I remember Connell mostly because we were having a barbecue, and uh, we I had walked down and bought a pig Yeah, somewhere. I forget which street was selling real pigs. Whole pigs, and we had roasted the whole pig oh God. on a spit. I, I remembering well, that. what? Okay, Be- stop it now. Because I'm, we're vegan now. <laughs> all right, so we were roasting the pig, and um, it was almost done. You know, pork, you got to be careful. It's got to cook all the way. Yes. So it wasn't almost done. You'd, you'd shave off some on the skin at the outside layer. But Kano at one point came up, and pulled the eyeball, eyeball and ate the eyeball. I remember that. He said it was it, a delicacy. Right, you know? right. And Sammy ate the brains because I remember telling him, you could use some extra brains. And he <laughs> didn't know whether he should laugh or not until right. everybody else right. started laughing. But 
Uh, that was the time that Mr. Lee uh, was translated by Kano, right? Yes. And uh, he was saying that uh, he was talking perfect sense. He was saying everybody else is all dressed and cleaned up except for me. And that was the first time that I seen him really be sociable with everybody. Yes, too, it was right? the only time I really remember him making direct eye contact and being social with anybody right, on right. the hill. It's the only time I can remember. And he also once said, you got too much sun today. Your face is all red. <laughs> Kano translated. What? what to you. Oh, he you said You got it sunburned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we, we, you know, we, we'd all laugh because usually he just talked to himself. So when he made sense, it was funny to yeah. us, you know. And, and the two of you had a relationship going anyway. Um, yeah, yeah. Without understanding a word, you know, a little bit of Spanish. But. Right, right. Uh, we had a turtle. In, well, one time a... Um, uh, an Arkansas trucker couple brought a snapping turtle up there and we built a pond. We'll tell that story later. Yeah, because that is a, is a much longer story. It also g gets into this whole story uh, that became a metaphor for survival on the hill. And uh, it's, it's a much larger story that also, they brought it because we were doing a play inside the teepee. And once we talk about that, we'll get into uh, the turtle, the live snapping turtle that you built the pond for. Yeah. And, um, you know. Yeah, they didn't bring it up for the play. I'll I, I just stop you there. Okay. We'll talk about it later. Sorry, okay? you're right. They didn't bring it up okay. for the play. You no. asked them to bring no, it up. I didn't even ask them to bring it. Okay, I'll tell you the story. I thought okay? you did. Okay, well, I'll tell I, you the story. Do you right. want me to tell you the no. story now? Okay, okay, no. Otherwise, it'll be too long an episode, and we'll be going backwards. Okay. I mean, forward, only to have to go backwards. All right. All right. But any continue. case, I would have continued conversations with uh, Mr. Lee about the turtle, right? Yes. We made it into a kind of a comic routine between ourselves, you know, a, a fake kind of daily argument that we'd have. And I'd say... Tortuga del Sol, and he'd say, Mr. Lee would go, he insists, no, 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 Tortuga del Luna, you know, so sun, moon, both of us were saying the turtle belonged to one or the other. The sun and the moon, right. yeah, yeah. Uh, but he was, he w Mr. Lee was loved by everyone. Yeah, he was like um, a neutral love object, right. almost. One time we thought that Sammy actually succeeded in hassling him off the hill permanently. For some reason, Sammy was all bugged out about the fact that Mr. Lee was, uh, you know, expanding his hut because he was very clever. <laughs> because his hut was all tied, a way of expanding it is by untying from the inside and tying it to the outside. So his, his hut kind of kept growing <laughs> that way. And for some reason, it just really bugged Sammy, which really bugged me because in reality, nobody took up more space on the hill than Sammy and all this crap, not to mention La Ponderosa, the compound that had enough space to rent out to other people in it, yeah. you know? So um, one day Sammy yelled at him and he didn't come back that evening. And he wasn't there the next morning. And he wasn't there that evening. And he didn't come back for days. And everybody really missed him, including Sammy. And although he always went his own way and didn't, as we say, interact much with people mm. on the hill, 
but he was so charming and he represented stability and and gentleness and what guilelessness and kindness and calmness in what was mostly a pretty explosive and cunning environment right and then one day eventually came back and everybody was like crazy and oh, happy God. about seeing him come back everybody uh, was so happy and he decided to ignore sammy and all his yelling at him and he tore his hut down started again. dismantling it all. <laughs> yeah and rebuilding it meaning he'd retie it all from scratch yeah. and uh i helped i guess i burned all the old cardboard that had been up there and uh but everything else, the mattresses, the rags, doors, skids, et cetera, were just thrown, scattered around. And uh, But I think he himself, as I recall, took a lot of it out to the corner. To yeah, but then everybody sanitation. started uh, picking it up. And everybody, including now a kindler, gentler Sammy, who was just super contrite uh, about what he had done, was telling him not to put all that stinky stuff back up. And Mr. Lee agreed. Right. And... He worked incredibly hard that entire day, making his hut smaller and, and uh, you know, yeah, taking the garbage away. And, and so it was like a glorious day on the hill. Mr. Lee is back. Yeah. Sammy and him have united. He's, he's got, now got a much smaller hut. He started writing on the outside again. Probably <laughs> something like the United Nations is under renovation. <laughs> Who knows? I don't know what, right. but it was just a great day. And then, you know, we found out his story. Yes. yes after it was in the article that Jim wrote. Right, yeah. which we'll get into later as well when we talk about the media. Um, so, so his story was, he was 62 years old at the time. He came to the West when he was 10. He went to Cuba where he had uncles. And uh, he lived there for a number of years and apparently he had his own grocery store there until the Cuban Revolution. And at that point, he said the UN got him to the US as a refugee. And here in New York, he worked in uh, restaurants as a dishwasher and various other jobs. And he said he hadn't worked in 10 years at that point when he was being interviewed, but apparently he really, really wanted a job desperately. And he asked the journalist and the translator if they couldn't give him a job. Right, right. So yes, I mean, that's his story. But I mean, uh, how much of it is true? We don't know. Right. I mean, was he on the blue pill or the red pill? When he was telling the story, was he on the blue pill one time when he lived? I, I don't know. But he also said, what he had five thousand wives, <laughs> which and, is why grain of salt with everything right. that he told. He had five thousand wives and a hundred children, and uh, he said his wives just wanted his money, so he didn't have a wife anymore. And uh, and he also said he was trying to get um, help from the Lee Society. Mm -hmm. I mean, in Chinatown to help him, but somehow they hadn't helped him. Right, and you know, I actually looked this up and. The Lee Society actually does exist. There's still such a thing as the Lee Family Association. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it dates all the way back to the building of the Transcontinental Railway. And uh, it has a Yelp page <laughs> right now, if you look it up. So I think there really actually was such a thing. And it's supposedly still located yeah. on Mott Street right now in the heart of Chinatown. 
Anyway, somewhere along the line, uh, Mr. Lee clearly uh, lost it, or found it, if you're Nick Fricaro. Well, yeah, I mean, he was living his life. But God knows what happened to him and his family and exactly what his blue pill story was. Uh, it's, it was hard, it's hard to say. Um, I remember one story um, during the, the Gulf War, the first Gulf War, uh, in early 91, this was January and February 91, Nick brought a bunch of yellow ribbon to mm. use on the hill as a statement. We were going to make some kind of artistic statement about the war with these yellow ribbons because back in that day, there were yellow ribbons everywhere. Uh, you know, tie a yellow ribbon around the old oak tree, and 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 nobody really knew where that came from, and everybody was conflicted, and there was a lot of confusion and division about what it actually no, meant, no, no. or what the origin of the yellow no. ribbon was. Yes, Nick. No, no, there weren't. No, <laughs> you checked wrong. No, the there. origin of the yellow ribbon. I know exactly what it was. Okay, please. It was. Uh, Tony Orlando no, and Tom. there was a song. Tie a yellow ribbon around the old oak tree. Yeah, that was Tony. Nick, Tony Orlando and Don redid a version of a song that was older than that. I, I checked into the whole yellow ribbon thing. That's let, why, let, me, that, that's, let, me, let, me, let me answer this, this once and for all. This is where all the confusion came from. No, it's no there's no confusion. Mm. All right, right, you guys, look it up yourself. I'll no, put I'm not going to. I'm not going to. No. In the show notes where you can see that I'm How right. about I went to the Army when I was uh, 18, and I did cadence to around the block, it pushed up. I, I did cadence to all these cadence songs. Mm hmm and one of them was a Yellow Ribbon song. Yes, not Tony Orlando and Dawn's, though. Okay, at that time, everybody knew it because of that song. I know. Why are you getting so angry? He does this all the time. Why are you getting so angry? Well, could, well the other thing is saying there was a division. There was, there was no, a division. Not really. The, the, the first Gulf War was the good war, quote-unquote. You know, that was saving Kuwait or something like that. The second Gulf War was the, the one that was the stupid one that Bush pushed us into for no reason, weapons of mass destruction. After 9-11. After 9-11, right. 9-11 was a, a, a place where everybody was scared in this country. So literally 10 years later. 10 years this, later, yeah. yeah. 10 years later. That's where they started having the yellow ribbons that they put on the cars, the magnets and stuff <laughs> like that. Yeah, yeah. In a lot of ways, the after 9-11 was when Thieves Theater stopped doing their yes, guerrilla work because yes. you couldn't go into the street anymore. You couldn't do any guerrilla work because now it was considered terrorism, not right. poetic terrorism. Just terrorism. terrorism. If you did anything that was disruptive in the streets. So, you know, we stopped doing that. Although I remember the yellow ribbons because I was working in Philly at that time. Yeah. So I was going down the highway there, and seeing all these little flags as trash that people would put on their cars, these flags... That flew off the cars, and so the streets were littered with the, flags. I-95 was littered with little baby flags, and I go into the Walmart down there. You know, nobody in New York, in the New York City bubble, would put those, uh, bring support to troops, yellow little flags. Yeah, yeah, they were, you know, they were flat ribbon-shaped magnets, yellow ones that said, support our troops. And they right. were everywhere there. Right, right. I, I'd go in there and I'd take that ribbon, that magnetic ribbon off the car that was in the Walmart 
shopping that or jersey car you know mm-hmm. and i put it onto the gas tank uh, lid where you fill you have up the gas, gas up so that you have to see it so the people would come out and see that their magnet had been moved to the gas tank yeah yeah as a I ki- mean, as a kind of guerrilla action trying to remind people that this war is all about oil right but i mean still we couldn't go out in the street and do anything even a couple years after no that. right but anyway that that's sort of off the uh, it's off the topic but uh meanwhile by the way 30 years later there are ribbons everywhere ribbons for everything pink ribbons for breast cancer uh etc cetera, etc cetera, right, right? right. Th- but that also all kind of started back then anyway you gave mr lee yellow ribbon a bunch of yellow ribbon who mr lee loved this because he could use it all to tie up his hut which was again growing larger and larger right. Take that, Sammy, who didn't say a word. Yeah, he couldn't say anything. (laughs) But it was a great way to use yellow ribbon. It was like a little subversive action. Give Mr. Lee a bunch of decorative yellow ribbon, you know. All right, right, so now um, we've covered all of the initial residents that were first there when we arrived at the Hill. And from here on out, we'll get into various stories that led up to the eventual tragedy that marked the beginning and end of the Hill. Yeah, and the the stories will include our relationship with the press, which we just hinted at now, Mm -hmm. and um, also the largest ever uh, NYC police corruption scandal, that we were in the middle of, the 5th Precinct was part of that corruption scandal, was implicated. Right, exactly. And that gets into uh, Nick's arrest. We'll right. get into that as well, which is all tied up into that corruption scandal as well. And um, then the visits and uh, from school groups and celebrities and various filmmakers that came up there. Yeah, some visit from the American Indian Movement, yes. which was very eventful, and a lot more. All right. Thank you again for listening to The Hill by Thieves Theatre. And if you like what you hear, please don't forget to like, subscribe, and to hit that bell so that you know when our next episode is out. And check out our website at thievestheater.org or follow us on Instagram and Twitter at TP on the Hill. That's T-I-P-I on the Hill. Thanks again for listening. Thanks. Chill See pill you. for Nick now. <laughs> Bye. Calm down. Calm down. <laughs> That's not going to work, sweetie.